is in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, where God appeared to a man named, we know as Abraham. At that time, his name was Abram, and God spoke to him and said, Abraham, you're going to have as many descendants as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But at that time, Abraham was 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 65. And they did not have any children, much less a whole host through which these descendants could come. After God made the promise, a year passed, five years passed, a decade passed, 20 years passed, 24 years passed, and still Abraham and Sarah, 99 and 89, still had no children through which that uh, army of descendants could come. So God, the angel of the Lord, again appeared to Abraham and said to him, Abraham, I haven't forgotten your promise. I haven't forgotten my promise to you. You're going to have as many descendants as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Abraham said, God, that promise was hard to believe when I was 75, but now I'm 99 years old. My wife, Sarah, is 89 years old. We don't have this child of promise. How can this happen? Sarah overheard the conversation between the angel of the Lord and Abraham. She was in the tent preparing a meal, and she laughed. She said, this 89-year-old body is not having any children. The angel of the Lord said, Sarah, why did you laugh? And she poked her head out of the tent and said, no, 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 I did not laugh. The angel of the Lord said, yes, you did laugh, but at this time next year, I will return to you, and you will have that son. That's exactly what happened. 100-year-old Abraham, 90-year-old Sarah, conceived and gave birth to a boy. They named him Isaac. Now, let me see your hands. Is there anyone in the room who is named after a family member, a grandmother, an aunt, an uncle, anybody like that? Sometimes moms and dads name their children based on a family member. But sometimes moms and dads name their children because they like how the first name and the last name sound together. They say, it. oh, that's beautiful. Let's name our child that. But there are times that moms and dads go through the baby books, and they start looking at the meanings of names, and they say, oh, this means godly princess. Let's name our daughter that. Oh, this is strong warrior. Let's name our son that. I think Gary means slow to learn or something like that. And so sometimes moms and dads name their children based on the meaning of the name. And the meaning of the name Isaac in Hebrew is laughter. Because Abraham and Sarah knew that everyone who heard that they had had a baby would laugh. Wait a minute. 100-year-old Sarah, 100-year-old uh, Abraham, 90-year-old Sarah, they lived next door to me in the nursing home. That's who had a baby. That's right. I cannot believe it. Now, how many of you who are at least 50 years old would like to get a visit from an angel tonight? And to have him say to you, you need to go buy some diapers. <laughs> and not for yourself. <laughs> you are going to have a baby. Now, some of you would welcome that, but many of you would say, Lord, no, we will go to Africa. We will do whatever you want. Just don't make us raise another child. But it is a fantastic story of different generations of people coming together to accomplish God's purposes together. Another of those stories is from the book of 1 Samuel, where God spoke to another elderly couple. The husband's name was Elkanah. And the wife's name was Hannah. 
She also had been unable to conceive, but desperately wanted a child. And so she continued to ask God, God, please give me a son. Please give me a baby boy. If you do, I will return him to you and let him serve you all the days of his life. I will not hold on to him. I will not helicopter over him. I will let you have him. Just please give me a son. One day, Hannah went to the sanctuary area where God's people worshipped. And she poured out her soul to the Lord. So fervent was her prayer that her mouth was moving, but no sound was coming out. That's the way the Bible describes it. So she was mouthing the words, oh God, but no, was, was saying no words. And Eli, the priest, walked in, saw what Hannah was doing, and he mistook what he saw for drunkenness. He saw a woman whose mouth was moving and no sound was coming out. And so he thought that she had been drinking. So he confronted her. Woman, get up from there. We don't act like this. The sanctuary is not the place for drunkenness. We do dad and deacons meetings. Now get away from here with that. She said, no, 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 I haven't been drinking. I am, I am deeply distressed in my soul. I am infertile. I've not been able to have a baby, but I really want one. And I am just in such deep distress, praying to God, asking for him to give me a son. And I've made God a promise that if he will give me that son, I will return him to the Lord and let him serve him all the days of his life. Eli said, may the Lord grant your request. I don't know if you're familiar with that passage or not, but I love that next sentence. The very next sentence in Scripture is, the Lord remembered Hannah. And I want to put in parenthesis this lesson. God never forgets you. There's not a single moment, not a solitary split second, that His attention ever has not been on you. I don't understand how a God who is so holy and vast and infinite even cares about us, how he even can know that we are here, but he does. And so even though we may walk through the valleys of the shadow of death, we don't do so alone. We don't ever do so without our attentive, loving, heavenly Father watching over us. And that lesson is one that Hannah learned the Bible tells us that she and her husband Elkanah conceived and they gave birth to a baby, baby boy who they named Samuel, which means God heard me. He heard my prayers. The Bible doesn't tell us the specific length of time. It only tells us that after the child was weaned and the commentaries that I've read, the scholars think that that was somewhere around three years. Hannah returned to the sanctuary area, and I imagine the conversation going something like this. Eli, do you remember me? Do you remember one day, several years ago, you came into the sanctuary, and you saw someone that you thought had been drinking? That was me. And do you remember that I was praying? Do you remember what I was praying for? A baby boy. That's right. And I made God a promise that if he would give me that son, I would return him to the Lord. So that he could serve him all the days of his life. Samuel, Samuel, come here. This is my, my baby boy, Samuel. God heard my prayer. He answered it. And with integrity, I am keeping my vow and I'm returning him to the Lord. Eli trained him how to be a mighty prophet of God. 
I have a tremendous idea. All of you who have three-year-old children and grandchildren, I want you to bring them to Pastor Wade. <laughs> Every morning when you are on your way to the office, drop them off and say, train our children to serve the Lord. He would love it. He does not have nearly enough to do during the day. He will take care of your three-year-olds. And that story of very old Hannah, very old Eli, and very young Samuel coming together to accomplish God's purposes is phenomenal. All weekend long, those of us who have been involved in Disciple Now have been looking at this idea of together. How God, not just in theory, not just in principle, desires for His people to be a family, but in reality, in truth. And despite the diversity, despite the differences that, that all sort of differentiate us, there is the common bond of life in Jesus Christ, which draws us together as a family. And so what is an appropriate way for us to look at this idea of these different generations, the church, the bride of Jesus Christ accomplishing God's purposes? I'd like you to turn with me in God's Word, please, to Psalm 71. These 150 psalms that we have in the middle of our Bible are the songs that the Jewish people would sing as they gathered together in worship. Now, we most commonly associate David with the book of Psalms, and we should because he wrote more of them than any other person. But David did not write all of the 150 psalms. I counted them up this past week, and if my count is correct, David wrote 74 of the 154 psalms, which means just a shade less than half of them. Some other isolated individuals wrote psalms. A man named Asaph wrote a few. Moses has a psalm in here, Psalm 90. Solomon wrote a psalm. And then there is a very musical family, the sons of Korah, like the Jonas brothers, who got together and wrote some uh, psalms, and they are included in here. Or if you're not a Jonas brothers, the Jacksons or Osmonds, depending on your generation. And so they got together, but this psalm is anonymous. We don't know who wrote this psalm, but we know something about the person who wrote this psalm. I want to look at a couple of different sections here and make a couple of applications based on this man's record of his own spiritual journey. Would you read with me, please, in verse 5? The psalmist said, For you are my hope, Lord God, my confidence from my youth. I have leaned on you from birth. You took me from my mother's womb, and my praise is always about you. So he's looking back on his life and saying, God, I, I have always trusted you. You've always been my confidence, and I've not deviated from that path. But then look down in verses 17 and 18. The psalmist said, God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still proclaim your wondrous works. Even while I am old and gray, God, do not abandon me. While I proclaim your power to another generation, your strength to all who are to come. The psalmist was reflecting on his life in God. And so there are a couple of ideas that I want to mention here based on what he wrote. First, younger generations need solid foundations upon which they can build their lives. We live in a very confusing twisted, distorted society. 
One in which, although those of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ regularly put our message out there, there are a whole host of conflicting reports saying, no, 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 any way to God is fine, or there is no God at all. Don't waste yourself on that. And so even though we are trying to help younger generations, they live in a context in which all sorts of messages are blasted their direction. Every one of us is building a life. Every one of us through our series of decisions is putting a life together. And the the sum total of that will be our lives. Jesus told a story about that very same process in Matthew chapter 7 to close the Sermon on the Mount. He said two men built houses. One of them chose a luxurious location down by the beach. And he built his house and, and it was fantastic for everyone to see but... Wind began to blow and rain began to fall and that house collapsed. Not because the man took shortcuts with the carpentry. Not because he used inferior materials. But because he built his house on the wrong foundation. He built it on sand. He said another man at the same time was building his home. And he chose a location different from the beach. He chose to build his home on solid rock. And the same winds blew and the same rain fell, but this man's house stood strong. Not because his carpentry was better, not because the materials were stronger, but because the foundation was solid. Younger generations need solid foundations upon which they can build their lives. They need to know Jesus is the way to build a life that matters, to build a life that counts. Now... The Bible gives us this one story that reaches its way all the way through all 66 books. And that is that God is is reclaiming a people for his own. He is drawing out of this vast human population people who who will surrender their lives to him in repentance and faith. And it is only people who build on Jesus who will be able to have sustaining life. So younger generations need solid foundations upon which they can build their lives. They need someone who can go to them and say, look, despite whatever else may happen, even if you are in the minority, you can count on God. You can rely on him. He's never failed. Not one single instant. He will be rock solid for you. And the psalmist says that someone got to him. He he says here in this first section that we read, God, you are my hope. You always have been. You have been my confidence from my youth. In the early days of childhood and adolescence, I learned that you are worthy of all that I can give you. And I have chosen to build on you. And you have been solid. Then in verse 6, he says, he uses a hyperbole here. He says, I have leaned on you from birth. It's almost like I came out trusting you. You took me from my mother's womb. And my praise is always about you. He says, God... You have been a reliable foundation for me. And so now my story is different from the stories of others. Lots of people, and perhaps some in this room, have stories in which they wandered from God or maybe shook their fists in God's face, ran as far away from, uh, from him as they could, and, and God reached out in mercy and grace and brought you back home. And those stories are incredibly meaningful to know that God can do that. But just as meaningful and powerful is that God has protected lives from running to the far country and guided them from their childhood on. And the psalmist said, that's that's what you did, God. 
God, you have been a solid foundation for me from my youth. What I do now is travel and speak, but prior to my doing this itinerant work, I served as a student minister at a church in Columbus, the town where I still live. And just before our evening service one night, I was seated on the far side, and the, the door on that side of our auditorium opened, and a lady named Angie poked her head in the door and said, Psst, Gary, Gary. And so I got up and went over to where she was, and she said, can Mary Beth sit with you tonight? Now, Mary Beth was Angie's four-year-old daughter. We were great buddies. And I said, of course. She said, great. Dudley got called in. This storm has knocked some power out, so he had to go to work. I've got the nursery tonight. I don't want Mary Beth back there. She'll keep everybody stirred up. And so let, I want her to come sit with you. I said, no problem. Now, what Angie failed to tell me was that before she brought Mary Beth up to the sanctuary that she had given her about 13 cans of energy drink. Because when Mary Beth came into the room, she did not walk in. She ran in. And she stood up. We didn't have chairs like these. We had pews. And so she was walking, looking out into the crowd, waving at people, grinning from ear to ear. She didn't know you were supposed to look miserable in church. Now, you got that down. But she didn't know it. She thought you were supposed to have a smile on your face when you were in a church building. And so I began thinking to myself, how am I going to calm her down? This is during the music. It's all right right now. But when the preaching is going, she can't do that. I didn't have any Benadryl or a hammer or anything like that. So I didn't know how I was going to calm calm her down. But then in a moment of inspiration, I pulled a pen out of my pocket, tore a piece of paper out of my notebook, put it on top of a hymnal and handed it to little four-year-old Mary Beth. She took the pen and then looked back at me and said, do you want me to take notes? I said, yes, I want you to take notes. And she, I don't and so I took my hand and put it over the top of hers, and together we made it through that night. Now, did you hear what Mary Beth said? She said, I want to do right, but I don't know how. I don't know any person. I've never met a person who said, my goal in life is to go through one disaster after another. I want my marriage to fall apart. I want my children to rebel against me and be far from God. I want to make awful decisions that result in ruin on multiple levels. I have never known a person who wanted to choose that pathway, but I have known a lot of people who wanted to do right but didn't know how, who wanted a solid foundation but weren't exactly sure how to build on it. Which leads to the second idea. Later in the passages that we read, the psalmist there in verse 17 said, God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still proclaim your wondrous works. Even now, while I am old and gray, God, do not abandon me. While I proclaim your power to another generation, your strength to all who are to come. The psalmist, now obviously some time has passed. He's got gray hair. He's probably a little heavier, moving a little bit more slowly. And he's saying, God, when I was a younger person, I learned to build on you. And now that I am older, God, now that I have some experience, now that some more pages of the calendar have turned, I don't want to forget about those people who are now where I once was. 
God, there are some people making the very same decision that I had to make 20 years ago. There are some people navigating some of the same tricky paths that I once walked. And so, God, you, you helped me get through those. And now that I'm old and gray, now that I have this experience that, that I have gained, God, please give me strength so that I can use it to help people. The second lesson is that older generations have the responsibility to help younger generations know how to build. I chose that word responsibility for a reason. No doubt, I shared this in the first service, I don't know anything that energizes me more than knowing that God is using me in the life of another person. I'm not in any way claiming to be the most influential person in people's lives or the main part of the story, but I do know that God has used me in the lives of other people to help them become who they are, and I get all kinds of enthusiasm and meaning and purpose from that. So it is an incredible privilege to be used by God to to help people along the pathway, but it's more than a privilege, it's a responsibility. You can hear that coming from the psalmist. God, I built on solid foundations from my very youth, from, from, from the womb I trusted you. But God, now that I'm older, help me to reach backward so that I can help people know how to build their lives. One of the mistakes that we make in churches is we do so much segmented ministry that before you know it, people of different generations don't even know each other's names. Much less have the capacity to benefit each other. And that's not together. I'm all for having appropriate age-graded ministries and to senior adults and to uh, all to, I'm all for that, but not to the exclusion of we're one family. We're one body. We belong together. And so these older generations have the responsibility to say, God taught me some lessons when I was 20 that someone who now is 20 could benefit from. And so I want to reach backward to help them. That impact, that effect is strong. Let me tell you about how someone did so for me. On my dad's side of the family, there are seven grandchildren, all boys. Not a single XX chromosome on that side of the family at all. On my mother's side of the family, there are nine grandchildren, all boys except for one, Corey, who is the youngest, and she's a girl. So I grew up without any sisters, without any girl cousins. I don't know how I became such an expert on women, but somehow I was able to. Well, on my dad's side of the family, my brother and I are the youngest two of the cousins, and there is a gap in our ages between our older cousins. So we constantly were picked on, and it was just, it was just miserable Thanksgiving and Christmas, the, what we endured. One day, my grandmother had all, my grandparents had all seven of us at, her, at uh, their house, my grandmother and grandfather's house, and she had to go get her hair cut. So for some reason, I was only six or seven, she loaded all of us up in the car to take us with her. No, not a single seatbelt worn. All of you kids riding bicycles with helmets, I didn't even know what that was. 
And so we all got mashed into that car. My brother and I were on that little back part by the back windshield just stretched out waving at people. When we got to the place where my grandmother was getting her hair cut, she gave each of us some money to go into a little store next to that place, like a Dollar Tree or something like that. So we all went inside, and I found what I wanted almost immediately. It was a little attachment that you could screw onto the end of your water hose called the Water Wizard, and it would spray out rockets of water. And based on that packaging, I thought, oh, today is the day I get my revenge. I'm going to buy this. I'm going to screw it on call. Hey, come outside and just blast them. And so on top of that, it was only 99 cents. Sales tax at that time was 6%. And so I went to the uh, cash register. This was before everything was scanned through. She punched some buttons on the machine. She said, It'll be, she said that will be $1.05, please. At that time, a six- or seven-year-old boy, I did not know anything about it. What do you mean? She said, you have to pay sales tax. What are sales tax? She said, that's every time you buy something, you have to pay tax on it. I didn't know about sales tax. It was my first introduction to the evils of the government. <laughs> and so I was sitting there saying to her, I don't have any money. Well, at that time, I would have sounded like, I don't have any money. That's how I sounded then when puberty hit me at 28, one of the happiest days of my life. And so, an elderly lady who overheard what was going on had gathered her items but was not all of the way out the door. And she turned. She walked back to the counter and said, how much does he owe? And she said, he owes a nickel. He's got a dollar. It's a dollar five. She put her purse down and started digging through her purse. I don't know how you ladies find anything in those things. She started digging through. She pulled out a little coin purse, and she said something like, this is not her exact sentence, but it was something like, a nickel is a small price to pay for a little boy's happiness. And she paid that nickel, and I got my water wizard, and I got my revenge. <laughs> now, let me tell you with that woman's one-time example in a chance encounter has done for me. Every single time that I had been in a checkout line and, I ha and the person in front of me has not had the money to pay, I've always bought whatever they had. Every single time. Now, it has not happened often. Less than a dozen times, maybe still single digits. It just doesn't happen that often. But, it, but every single time that I have been in a checkout line and someone did not have the money to pay, because of that woman's example and what she did for me, I have paid every time. The last time was probably three or four years ago. I was in Columbus Kroger, and a woman thought she had her debit card with her. She didn't. She began putting some items back, and I said, what's the problem? She said, I am so sorry. I don't have enough money. I thought I had my debit card, but I'm just going to pay cash. I said, I'll take care of it. She said, no, 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 no. This is way too much. I said, please. I told her that story. She said, I really want to do this. And every time I've had that opportunity, I have done it because of that woman's example. Now, I don't want you people following me around. <laughs> I don't want you showing up in the grocery store with two full shopping carts saying, Gary... Don't have the money to pay. I would pay for you to keep my street going, but oh, what the Lord is going to do for you. Mm. That woman 
in a chance encounter one day left a lifelong impact on me. Imagine what would happen if the church did that on purpose. If the church, if the bride, the body of Christ began saying, we are some older generation people. And there are some things that we had to learn by doing them twice because we didn't do them well the first time. And we can help you with those. We can help you navigate this. We know what it is like to raise teenagers. We know what it is like not to recognize the children that you gave birth to. We understand. We can help you know how to manage your money. We've been through it. Imagine what would happen if older generation people embraced God's calling and said, God, now that I'm older, now that, now that I have got some years of experience on me, help me reach backward to help people who now are where I once were, where I once was. Before anybody in the room starts elbowing the person next to you saying, I'm glad he's talking to those old people today. They need to hear this. I want you to understand something. Every person in this room is an older generation person to someone. No doubt, those who are in their 70s and 80s have a lot of people coming behind them. And so they are older generation people to many who are walking. But if you are in your 50s and 60s, you are an older generation person to those moms and dads who are in their 30s and 40s trying to raise their children and, and manage to sift through all of these competing loyalties and priorities. You can help them. And if you are in your 30s and 40s, you are an older generation person to those who are in their 20s and 30s who are just starting out on the pathway of adult life and they're trying to figure out how do we manage this, what do we do about this. And if you're in your 20s and 30s, you are an older generation person to college students. If you are a college student, you are an older generation person to high school students. If you are a high school student, you are an older generation person to middle school students. And even if you are in middle school, barely even even 12 years old, you are older generation students to little seven and eight year old boys who were looking up saying, how do I live? We all have people walking now where we once were. And it is not just a privilege, it is a God-given responsibility for us to say, let me help you. Rather than just gathering with, with those who are my peers, rather than, than exclusively being with folks that, that are of the same age and generation, God has helped me. And so how can I then, in turn, help people who now are where I once was? Younger generations need solid foundations upon which they can build their lives. Every single foundation but Jesus will fall. That's a guarantee. And so those of us who are older generations must do everything that we can to help younger generations build upon the, the life, the principles that Jesus taught us for living as he desires. Some of my favorite stories in this book are those where different generations of people come together to accomplish God's purposes. I love watching those ages come together to say we're focused on the same ideas. And some of my favorite stories that are happening on this planet today are the same. 
where different generations of people scattered all across generations saying we are uniting together to be right in the center of God's plans for us. And that includes you.